All right, let's take out our Bibles and get into the Word of God. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. I'll give you the page number. We are going to be in the book of Luke today. We are in chapter 10, verse 1, page 868, because we're in part 52 of our Being Jesus series. And I entitled today's message, Supercharged, and I have a couple thoughts for you. And then I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank that's on the sheet that was handed to you as you walked in. Uh, just so you know, uh, in our series, where we're at is that I took the book of John, the gospel of John, recently, all the way up until kind of the last weeks of Jesus. And then we're going to kind of put pause on John and zoom back in time to grab the other guys. Because we were on a theme kick, we're going to grab the other guys and have them catch up to John. So now we're jumping back a little bit, back into the ministry of Jesus in chronology. So we are in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and I just have these couple thoughts for you. The church of Jesus Christ was built to do something. It's actually designed to go somewhere and be effective. Uh, we are given the identity of Jesus Christ. We are given the authority in Jesus Christ. And we are given the power of Jesus Christ because he is the head and we are the body. That's the point. But the whole reason that we are equipped is that we go do something. The whole concept that we would get all loaded and equipped and then not utilize it will not make sense. And it ends up kind of spoiling in on itself. You don't, you know, one of the old things that pastors used to say is you don't go and fill up your car with gas just to let it sit there, right? I mean, you, you fill up with gas so you can drive somewhere and do something. That's why you get loaded up with gas. Otherwise, it just sits there and it goes bad on you. Well, in the same way, everything you receive from Bridgeway and the training and things that God is giving you, let's say your spiritual gifts and your talents and, and all that, you're supposed to take them and utilize them on a daily basis. If we are not doing that, our Christianity gets distorted. So what I would hope is that while I'm teaching you this morning, I would hope that you have one ear toward me and one ear just listening at all times going, God, is there anything that while this guy is talking that you want to download to me that I need to go do for you? Is there something you're laying on my heart? And I just want to encourage you, if he starts sharing and you're getting into a good conversation with him, block me out, right? The minute Jesus kicks in and starts talking, just shut me down. I'm not that important. Block me out and kind of have date time with him and jot down notes, right? Oh, man, I, this is really coming to mind. I really need to follow through on this. Start listening while the message is going on of, okay, so what do I do about it? That's what I'm hoping for us, right? But we are built to do something. Where we're at in the series is that Jesus has already launched his inner core. That was the 12 apostles. We had Pastor Ryan Haynes come up and share with you a number of weeks back about how they were equipped. They were told to heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the, the kingdom is near and the gospel. And they kind of went out as power guys. Right. And we kind of went, well, those were the superheroes with the superpowers. You know what I mean? That doesn't really apply to me. OK, I don't think that's true. I think they were regular guys. But 
Now we're on wave two. He's already powered out with 12 guys. He is now going to expand that out to 72 more. Now, we cannot argue those were just the inner core of Jesus. This is actually the next wave out. 72 followers of Jesus are now going to be launched out, and they're going to be equipped to do amazing things in God's name. This is where we all start going, hey, maybe we're that third wave. Maybe we're that fourth wave. Like, all this stuff that Jesus keeps doing with his kids, maybe he's doing with us. And trying to get us out there and do something out into the world. You're going to hear a phrase a lot in this church uh, in the coming days of living on mission. And what that means is is that we should always be connected to the Father, listening for what He wants, and alert to the world around us. Because you're always on. That means that when you go to Starbucks, you're on. That means when you go to Walmart, you're on. That means when you take your kids to school, you're on. That means when you're in your cubicle, you're on. You are equipped as a child of God to be salt and light impact into the world, and you are out and about in the world on God's mission. It's not your mission. It's doing what he wants you to do. And if he tells you to do it, he's going to equip you to do it. Sometimes he tells you to go overseas. Sometimes he tells you to go across the street. But either way, you're on mission all the time. You're an ambassador flown in and dropped off in this world to carry out the kingdom of God's desire. So everywhere we go, we're always thinking, what can I do? How can I bless somebody? Where am I supposed to minister? Because you're already equipped. So the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We must do what we are called to do. We must do what we are called to do. We must not merely think about what we are called to do. We must not merely ponder what we are called to do. We must do... What we are called to do. This is a call to action type message, yeah? That's going to be very clear. So let's dive into God's word. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, page 868 says this. Now after this, remember we're going back in time. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. That is actually the word apostolos. Um, so where we get the word apostles means sent ones. So these are kind of, they're acting as apostles, but they're not called later on apostles. He appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. All right, let's just analyze that for a moment. How many people were sent out? 72, you sure about that? You're like, well, it says that. Well, hold on. The way that our Bible is put together is that we have, it's a group of books and we have backup manuscripts from a lot of different places in the world. And what they do is they cross-reference on each other to make sure that it's accurate. What's weird about this passage is that incredibly trustworthy manuscripts, one group says 70, one group says 72. And they're not like, well, that one's kind of sketchy. They're both solid. So... Is it 70 or is it 72 people that were sent out? You go, well, does it really matter? Well, hold on, hold on. 
Do you realize that numbers are a big deal in the Bible? Do you understand that they're a big deal in the Jewish history? So, for example, you would go, well, why are there 12 apostles? I don't know, because there was 12, what, tribes of Israel. All right, well, there's also 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem. Well, then there's also 24 thrones, because it's a 12 of this and the 12 of that. I mean, there's a lot of numbers spinning around, so it's likely that if Jesus selected out... 12 apostles, he's probably going to use a significant number to send out the next wave, right? So what would it mean? Well, let's say it's 70 people. What, what links does 70 have in the Old Testament? Well, we got a couple things. If you remember, when Moses was out in the wilderness, it came to a place where he's going, man, this is a huge group. I cannot lead this thing all by myself. I need some serious help. And this is where God's like, hey, I can take some of your spirit, I'll put it on everybody else, right? Do you remember how many elders he called forward? 70. Now you would look at that and go, well, maybe that's it because Jesus is the new Moses. And if he was going to share out what he was doing in the work, maybe he would grab 70 just like Moses did. 70 is also the number of the Sanhedrin. The high council, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, are 70. So you wonder whether or not Jesus was going, hey, you got your crew, I got my crew. Your crew's terrible, my crew's awesome, right? You don't, is that what he was trying to say? Well, what if it's 72? Does 72 have any value? In Genesis chapter 10, it lists out the nations of the world. Guess how many names are on that list? 72. Is it possible that Jesus was saying, I sent out the 12 apostles first because there's 12 tribes of Israel. Now I'm sending out 72 because that's the rest of the world. Is that the symbolic connection? In the book of Enoch, which is an extra biblical writing in between the Old Testament and New Testament, that was kind of the era that they wrote. Enoch even mentions there are 72 princes and languages of the world. In other words, the Jewish thought was the whole rest of the world was 72. So was Jesus saying, hey, we're not only about Israel, even though we're focusing on Israel right now, but we're ultimately going to reach out into the world. Is that what he was trying to say? In Jewish tradition, it was 72 leaders of the Jewish people that transferred the law from Hebrew to Greek. So, I mean, there's all these numbers that can spin around. You go, so which is it? Which is it? I have no idea. Don't care. All right, moving on. (laughs) Just thought you'd wonder. Uh, He sent them out just like he did with the 12. He sent them out two by two. Now, why would you do that? Why would you send them out two by two? Is it just companionship? Where you, it's a drag to do ministry alone, I'll tell you that. Don't you need somebody that kind of encourages you and kind of walks with you and you're like, man, that was a terrible day in ministry. And the other one's like, I know, but we got to keep going. Is it companionship? Is it protection? Let's say you get sick and you're laying on the road. Who's the buddy that's going to help you up, right? I mean, is that why he did it? Well, we're in a Jewish context, so there's another question that comes up. Do you realize that in a Jewish court of law, something is only legit if it is viewed by what? Two witnesses. Do you think they're going to do anything new or weird? Don't you think they need some validation? Ah, now you have two witnesses that saw it happen. Okay, there's a variety of reasons. Here's all I want you to know. Don't do ministry alone. It's just not healthy. You weren't built to do it that way. It doesn't make sense if you do it that way. And you will not have the blessings that you would normally have from God if you're a lone ranger out there doing everything on your own. 
It then says, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go out ahead of wherever Jesus was about to go. So they're not a mop-up crew. They're an advance team. That means that they are the appetizers. Okay? Now the entree's coming, right? But they're the appetite. They're supposed to go out there and you're going to find out that they get to do some pretty cool stuff. They're supposed to get everybody fired up going, man, here he comes. And when he comes through, he can do the ultimate healing. I may be able to heal you in body because of the authority of Jesus, but he's going to come through and heal your soul. That's a whole different ball game. We are just the little appetizers. And I would suggest to you that that's a way healthier way to view what we're supposed to be doing in the world today. We are supposed to go out into the world. You are not all of it. You are not that big of a deal. All right. You're an appetizer. And so our job is to go out in the world and go, man, Jesus is awesome. I can tell you my story. I can love on you. I can do, I can pray for you, but I can't fix your life. But Jesus can. And that's who I'm introducing you to. Our job is to move people closer to Christ and then get out of the way and allow them to connect in with Christ. We are not to have little converts of us. We are to have converts of Jesus Christ. Amen? Right, 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 right. Nobody amen on that. Okay, good. <laughs> Verse 2. I understand that's not our culture. It's okay. All right. Although I do think it's way cooler. All right, moving on. So, verse two, verse two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, a couple of problems I have with that. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to pray earnestly? Have you ever prayed earnestly? Because a lot of times, here's how our prayers go. We're sitting in a super comfy chair with our latte. And we begin to have quiet time and we pray and then it spills on us and we're like, why me, Lord? Why me? You know, he's like, uh, <laughs> okay, you wimp. What's wrong with you, right? I don't know if there's this earnest prayer. Earnest prayer means you're all in. It means that you're eagerly and agonizing and you're just praying with all your heart. Are we praying like that ever? Usually we'll pray like that for a family member if they're hurting, right? But do we pray about that about other stuff? He said, I want you to pray about that when it comes to evangelism and reaching the world. But we're not really doing that. It also said a couple other interesting things. It says, there's not a lot of harvest being done because there's not a lot of workers. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that we get more workers. And you're like, why in the world would I do that? He's the Lord of the harvest. If he's the Lord, why do I got to tell him to get workers to do his own thing? That's ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. Why should I pray for something that he's in charge of anyway and I can't really affect? Because you don't understand prayer. God has never needed us, but he wants us. In essence, here's what he's saying. Could I do it without you guys? Absolutely. Can I evangelize the world and just bypass you? Sure, I can. Do I want to? No. How about this? How about I hold back till you get your heart engaged? How about once you're all in and you get fired up, then we can do it together. How about you are so excited when someone comes to be saved because you've been praying like crazy for them? How about now all of a sudden my angels aren't just rejoicing for a saved soul. You're rejoicing for a saved soul. How about the idea that I could do all the ministry alone, but I don't want to. I want my kids with me. That's why I'm telling you. Understand that prayer is not only about outcomes and only about results and only about getting stuff fixed. 
lot of times prayer is about relationship, yeah? Connecting in. God, I'm with you. My heart's with you. I see what you want. And then the, the, probably the biggest issue I have with this is that it's the reverse of what we always think. It says, according to Jesus' perspective, there's tons of harvest, there's just not very many laborers. Where we always focus the reverse. Lord, there's not a lot of us, and the whole world hates you. The whole world hates me, and this is going to be brutal. Nobody wants to hear the gospel. Nobody wants to be loved on. Nobody wants to be encouraged. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? No, there's a whole broken world out there that would love to be loved on. They'd love to be encouraged. They would love to be cared for. They would love to be prayed for. They would love to hear the good news. But we're not doing it. The problem is not out there. The problem is there's not a lot of us motivated right here. Ah, that's a different way. So how's that going to change? Seems to be through prayer. Verse 3, first three words. Go your way, meaning get out of here. Let's go do it now. Go do something. Do what I built you to do. And then what? Seriously, check this out. Right? Behold, there you go. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And you're like, that's what I thought. It's dangerous to be out there. Christians, oh, I knew it. I, if you go out there, everybody's waiting to hurt me. Everybody, and, and Jesus is just telling you, you better be scared. Is that what he said? What does lambs among wolves mean? Does it mean innocent? Does it mean that even though there's bad guys out there that are trying to hurt other people, that your job is to be pure of heart? Does it mean that you're out there going, listen, I'm not out here to hurt anybody. I'm just an innocent person that's bringing you the gospel. Is that what it means? Or does it mean helpless, defenseless, and dependent on God? Are are we supposed to be entirely dependent on God going, listen, I got nothing in and of myself, but my father has told me to do this, so I'm going to do that? Is that what it means? Or does it mean that you're not supposed to do it by force because lambs are don't they're not aggressive like that are you supposed to go out and be men and women of peace so instead of shoving the gospel down everybody's throat maybe you're supposed to go out there and go hey i'm here to love on you if you don't want to be loved on i get it what does it mean well, i don't know maybe it's a little bit of all of that he said here's your instructions kids verse four carry no money bag I don't want you to be able to be autonomous. I don't want you to be able to go out there and go, no, 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 I can be totally alone. If nobody wants to be with me, whatever, I can do my own thing. No, no, no. I want you dependent on other people because that connects you together. So I don't want you to carry a money bag. I don't want you to carry an extra traveler's bag or a knapsack. I don't want you to bring in extra sandals. And I don't want you to greet anyone on the road. You're like, sweet. Like, I can be rude in Jesus' name. This is awesome, right? Jesus told me not to talk to you. (laughs) No, we're in the Middle East. Middle East has a totally different community, especially in the ancient world. It's still this way today. And you can go on mission trips and you will find this out to be the case. There are some cultures in the world that are the antithesis of America, meaning you come up and they just meet you and they're like, hey, how are you? And then they're like, hey, come to my house. We're going to drink tea for the next three hours. And you're like, dude, I don't even know you. And they're willing to stop their whole day, hang out with you, have tea. Whoa, tell me about your kids. Tell me about what you're doing. You know, And you're like, I, I, did, I didn't expect any of this. Because in America, we're always busy being efficient, doing something, going somewhere. We don't have time for anybody else. There are other cultures completely bent on community that was this culture so when you're walking around and somebody goes hey i haven't seen you in a long time that usually means you got about two hours that you're going to spend with them and jesus is like listen normally if we're on just a general 
walk. That's awesome. We have a mission to do. I need you to bypass. I need you to be polite, but I need you to keep going. We have some things that we need to accomplish. And then it says this. This seems really odd. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, or a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it'll return back to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town... And they receive you, eat what is set before you. All right, what's this whole person of peace thing? That sounds weird. Do you ever do that when you walk up to a house and you're like, are you a person of peace? And they're like, what are you, an alien? Why are you asking me that? Right? You're just, why are you asking me if it's a person of peace? Here's what it means. We're going Middle East. It's shalom, right? Y'all know what the term shalom means. Shalom does not just mean, man, I hope bad stuff stops. It means I hope that God would remove your bad stuff and backfill it with blessing and favor. I hope you get everything that you need to be joyful. That's a pretty cool greeting, right? So whenever they say shalom, that's what it means. So if you walk up, now imagine these little guys are going out on Jesus' behalf and they got their little Jesus freak t-shirts on and everybody knows that they're a Jesus thing going on. And you walk up and you knock on the door, right? You're like, hello, hi, on behalf of Jesus Christ, my name is Lance and I'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ, right? And they look and they go, boom, and they shut the door in your face. Now, what you're doing is you go, shalom. And if they're like, no, then you know your shalom just got reverberated back to you, right? It was like a boomerang shalom, just came right back. All right, he's like, move on. But if you're like, hey, shalom, and they're like, shalom, then you're like, oh, good, we got peace going on here. They're willing to hear about the gospel. There is a connection there, so we keep moving forward. But you keep moving on if they don't want that. Now, there are going to be some problems with that. You're basically mentioning out to them, I am here to bring you the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you reject that, that is ultimately back on you. What's intriguing about it is that Moses and Joshua operated on a series of rules of engagement when they were in war. And this is very controversial, so as I'm talking about it, I need you to, to wait till I finish to understand it. Because if we don't understand it, it sounds really messed up. Because here's how it really looks. It looks like the Jews used to live over in Egypt, and then they decided they wanted to have their own territory, and so they went over and killed everybody and took their land. And that's how they got the promised land. Is that not what it looks like? And you're kind of like, well, that's awfully greedy. And then they're like, it's my land, my They're all golem about it. And then everyone's trying to, you know, get in there, and they're like, no, it's my land. Okay, here's actually what happened. The Bible says that God took his own kids and set them away in Egypt in bondage for how many years? 400 years. Why? It says because the sin of the Amorites, the people that were in the promised land, he was still working with them for over four generations. What was he doing with them? Trying to draw them to him. He was sitting there going, listen, I love you. You're important to me. Come on. Come on, guys. Let's do this. And at some point, he said, you've rejected me enough. Judgment's coming down. Now, judgment, you go, well, that's me. No, no, no. God did that to the Jews over and over and over, right? Because he would say, listen, come back to me. And they're like, no. And he's like, all right, judgment's coming down. Boom, you're out. 
So what he did is he brought in his kids after that time when he throws down judgment and says, kids, come on out. It's your time to come in here. Go in and bring my hammer down. This is between me and them. This is not about you. That was not them trying to grab territory for their own. It was about them being moved in there by God. Now, of course, any holy war, they're going to go, well, God told me to come over and kill you. Oh, awesome. I understand it's complicated. What I'm telling you is that they had rules of engagement, and here's how it went. If you walked in there as Israel, you had to knock on the door to the bad guys. Hey, hey, real quick. Hi, we're Jews. And um, we're, uh, we're here to kill you. So here's what I want you to know. I want to ask you a quick question. So do you guys want to give up? That was the rule. You go and you go, do you guys want to give up? And if they were like, you know, I was totally thinking about giving up today. So that is a great idea. I would love to give up. <laughs> then they're allowed to be forced labor. But if they go, no, giving up is a stupid idea. And they slam the door in your face, right? Because they're French, apparently. <laughs> I, I don't, I just had to come up with a, that was the first accent that popped into my head. All right. I don't know why. If they slam the door in your face, then you're like, all right, I guess we will have to kill you. So then their war fight. But now here's the other weird thing. If it's within the uh, boundaries of the promised land and you are supposed to fight them, you kill everybody. If they're outside the boundary lines, you only kill the dudes because the women and children didn't do anything. So they're allowed to be free. So there's all these rules of engagement that they had because they weren't on their own mission. They're on the mission from God. We got it? So in the same way, you're seeing Jesus send these people out and they're like, hey, I'm here with a message of salvation. Do you want it? They're like, no, slam. He's like, dude, that's on you. And you step out. All right. And let God do what God's going to do. But then it says, remain in the same house. Eat what's before you. What are all these rules about? Well, first of all, it's saying when you go there and you go into a new town, you're based completely on hospitality. So you knock on the door. Hi, I'm a Jew. Can I hang out in your house? And they go, yeah, come on in. So you come in. You're not supposed to look for better accommodations. You understand what I'm saying? You're not supposed to be like, do you have a pool? Right? And you're just like, I would love to stay here. You know, do you have cable? You're not. And then you kind of hop houses to get to the better ones, who has better chips, who has better, you know, that kind of stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. This isn't about you. I want you to stay where you are. And just eat whatever they lay before you. Don't be high maintenance. Oh, is this like food offered to idols? What's going to, don't do that. Just if they put something in front of you, just eat it. Because you're not here for you. You're here for me. So there was all these guidelines and then check it out in verse nine. He gives this command, heal the sick in that town. What's that? Well, just heal the sick. Alrighty, I can do that. That's awesome. He also gave them other instructions. These are only a sampling. How do we know that? Because of what they're about to do. Understand that Luke has already written about the instructions of the 12. He's only giving you a brief recap here. They had more instructions. He gives it. He doesn't say, I want you to pray about it. He doesn't say, I want you to think about it. He doesn't say, I want you to ponder it. He tells them a command to go get it done. Walk into the town and fix their problem. Okay, that's awesome. Let's do that. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They do not need to be impressed by you. They need to be impressed by me. So you let them know the reason why I'm here is because Jesus is in town. That's supposed to be empowering. Supposed to be amazing. What a mission trip, right? 
I mean, can you imagine if I said, if I said, man, I got a download from God and God just said that, hey, today, today only, right? You know, it's kind of one of those free set of steak knives if you sign up today. (laughs) Today only, everybody here is equipped to go heal the sick, cast out demons and preach and people will receive it. If I told you that, man, this is what we got. Absolutely. We're locked in everybody and go right. And everybody, what a blast. You would just run out and go crazy, right? You'd run into the hospital. You're like, and you get a healing and you get a healing. You you know, you're freaking out and everybody's like, ah, running around the hospital. I mean, it'd just be craziness where you're loving on everybody and you're all excited and man, that'd be a blast. Now, is that legit? No, not that way. But I wonder if we really understood our identity in Christ and our authority in Christ and our power in Christ and we're really connected to the Father. I wonder whether or not that's more of a reality than what we're living right now. Hmm. Verse 10, a little bit more on the rules of engagement. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of our town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. That's called judgment. If they say, I don't want your shalom, I don't want your Jesus, don't cast pearls before swine, walk out, we're out, we're done. That's on you. I'm not going to shove it down your throat. I'm not going to argue with you about it. Do you want Jesus or not? All right, cool, we're out. That's between you and him. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom. We're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It would be more bearable on that day for Sodom for that, than for that town. Because they rejected Jesus. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's a city we have no idea about. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That's up by Jesus' Galilee area. For if the mighty works done in you by Jesus had been done in Tyre and Sidon, who got wiped off the map in the Old Testament, man, they would have repented a long time ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Oh, and you, Capernaum, where Jesus has his home base, where he does tons of miracles and constantly loves on people. What, do you think you're going to get exalted to heaven? Uh, no, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, to Hades. That's pretty harsh. Why Sodom and Gomorrah? Quick side note. Why Sodom and Gomorrah? There's a lot of literature about why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And we always think about the wickedness, right? Because you're looking and you're going, that is a messed up city. Yeah. But here's what's fascinating. Do you realize the one common thing that is in most all Jewish accounts for why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Do you know what it is? Inhospitality. They were killed for lack of hospitality. Because the rule is, if someone comes in, you are supposed to take them in and share with them. And what they did was a polar opposite. Not only did they not take them in, They hurt them and wounded them. And God said, you're out. And burn the whole place up. We don't think of it like that. That's a Jewish mindset. And right here, this is a hospitality context. So that's why you would use Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep moving. Verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's a chain of command. Do you understand that as a child of God, you're walking under the banner of God and how people treat you affects Jesus very dramatically? Do you understand that precious are the death of his saints? Do you understand that every martyr that has ever died is hard on Jesus' heart? 
Do you understand that when people persecute you, they're persecuting him? It's the same reason why Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, was walking on the road to Damascus thinking that he was going to go beat up more Christians. And a big old bright light shines and he and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, I don't even know who you are. And he said, that's our problem. You're persecuting my kids. You touch my kids, you mess with me. Don't touch my kids like that. God takes you very personally. And that is why there's a shield and a protection and a, hey, they don't just get away with it. As his children, you are precious. It says this, then the 72 returned with joy, right? And they said, master, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Meaning we can cast them out whenever we need to. And he said to them, I was watching Satan. That's the Aramaic name for the devil. I was watching Satan fall like lightning, like rapid and forcefully from heaven. What does that mean? That sounds cool though, right? What does it mean? I'll give you five options. Was it Satan's kingdom took serious hits by you guys while you're out there and the kingdom of God was totally pressing in? Does it mean that? You go, oh, that sounds good. Verse, how about number two? Was it a warning against pride? Hey guys, you all seem pretty pumped up about the fact that you can cast out demons. You look like you're pretty cocky about that. You know what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven about pride. So I think you all need to mellow out for a second. Oh, that sounds good. What about number three? Is it that the coming cross of Jesus Christ would break the hold of Satan and they would have even greater success? Was it uh, number four, a view of a future time of the return of Jesus when Satan would be fully shut down, which was merely a foretaste of what just happened? Or was it number five, a reflection back to the original fall of Satan when he got shut down by God? I don't know. (laughs) That's on you. Anyway, moving on. Verse 19. Seriously, check this out. It says it right here. He said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's that snake handling passage, right? Is that what he meant? Was he talking about like real snakes and scorpions? Was that literal? Was that figurative? And you're like, Lance, come on. It's not literal. It's figurative. I mean, that's Satan was the serpent in the garden and those are his buddies and all that stuff. Okay. It's totally figurative. You sure? You're like, come on, dude, you're not a snake handler. I get it. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But I got a story for you. Paul's on a ship. It shipwrecks on the island of Malta. He comes out and it's super cold and rainy, so they're going to start a fire. Paul, like a good worker, goes out and gathers a bunch of wood. What's hiding in the wood? A snakey. So then he carries the snake and he goes over and throws it in the fire. And the snake's like, heck no, I'm not going in the fire. So he jumps out of the fire, latches on. It's a poisonous viper, bites Paul, he shakes it off into the fire, right? And everybody waits for him to die. And then he doesn't die. And they're like, whoa, this guy must be a god. Because God said, that's not going to shut you down. That was a real snake. That was a real protection. Is it figurative or literal? How about yes? (laughs) Know what I'm talking about? If you're on a mission for God, you are protected to do the mission of God. And you go, what about all the martyrs? That was their mission. They were to die. All right? Jesus said, man, I know that was awesome. I know you're all fired up. I know you're excited. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Man, there's something more important than all this power and this excitement and this craziness. You know what? The fact that you're going to be with me forever, that's really what we're celebrating. Awesome, right? And here's what's so encouraging about it. That's past tense with current results and forward results. In other words, the Greek construction means... Your names have been written and they stay written. 
They're not dead yet. Their names are already there. That's awesome. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Is my name there? Okay, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Your names are there. And if your names are there, then you can go out in joy and in peace and not be freaked out all the time. That's what we need to celebrate. Amen? Amen. Yay, God, right? All right, let's close this thing out. Turn one last passage, just two verses. Luke 17, verse 5, page 876. Luke 17, verse 5. I just want to close with this thought. Luke 17, verse 5. Uh, Jesus had just told his apostles that they needed to be forgiving to the degree that if their brother sins against them the same way seven times in a day, they got to forgive him. And they're like, that is ridiculous. I'm so not forgiving that guy like more than once. I mean, he's got one shot and he's out. And he's like, no, 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 infinitely you forgive your brother for the same offense. They're like, dude, you better increase our faith because that's never going to happen. And that's what happened right here. Verse five, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if, and as is the case, you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed. That is a proverbial smallest seed. They're super, super tiny, like a little coriander seed. They're super tiny. He said, you could say to this black mulberry tree who grows to a height of 35 feet, who has super deep roots, that rabbinic tradition says that its roots will remain in the earth for 600 years. You could say to this immovable tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now that's some serious gardening power, you know what I'm saying? That would be good. What was he saying? They're like, dude, you got to give us way more faith. I mean, we got to like store up faith. I got to get like a faith storage locker. I got, I got all kinds of stuff. I got to have faith, like faith, 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 right? And Jesus said, uh, no, you don't. You just need real faith. I'm not asking you to conjure and do magic and try to figure out all this stuff. And how do I have tons of faith? Do you trust me? Do you believe me? All right, we're good. We're not trying to play this other game about only when you become super powerful saint and you become like this great monster of a Christian, then we'll start doing really cool stuff. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Because if you even had any legitimate faith, we don't have a problem of power. You've never had a problem of power. You've never had a problem of authority as a Christian. We just have a problem of identity. We just don't even know who we are and what we're doing. What's the point of the message? What would it be like is if we really lived out our identity and our authority and the power that we've been given? How do our lives look now and how should they look? You and I were designed to get out there and do something. So let's go do something. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. May we be the church that you've designed. May our hearts long for you. May we bring glory to you in our families, in our, in our lives, in our children, in our schools, and in our workplaces. God, would you continue to open our eyes so that we might see what you have already built within. Holy Spirit, you say that you indwell us, and we don't even know what that means. And so would you continue to teach us and open up our eyes to that as well, that we might be honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next week.